0: Alright guys, we'll jump into uh, today's Bible reading, which is from Daniel 4. Um, Yeah, it should be on the connect cards or just follow. uh, From chapter 4 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters astrologers and diviners came I told them the dream but they could not interpret it for me finally Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream his name is Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods in him I said Belshazzar chief of the magicians I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you here is my dream interpret it for me These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field." Let him be drenched with the dew of the heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that king, you are that tree. You have become great and strong, your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dews of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored and when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes." Immediately, what he had said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of this earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne, and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Thanks, Rob.
1: Uh, A couple of things about my uh, long service leave in case if you're a a regular here, that's a regular, not irregular. Uh, If you're a regular here at DPC, you would have got an email uh, from me, I don't know, a week or so ago. uh, That has a little bit more to say about my long service leave. But just to say uh, two things about it. One is I'm actually around this coming week. So even though this is my last Sunday, if you need to get in touch during the week, I'll be around uh, just wrapping things up uh, next Saturday. Uh, And the second is um, I decided you might be thinking, oh, what happens with pastors when they're on long service leave? Where do they go to church? And it's something I've thought about a lot, because actually for nine and a half years, you guys have been my church family. Like, why would I want to go to church anywhere else? But I do also really need to rest. And when I come here, I tend to be kind of switched on to pastoring and ministry and stuff. So for the most part, if you didn't read in the email, you won't see me around. But who knows, I might pop up. Uh, I plan to probably go to uh, Bandura Presbyterian Church, if you're wondering. It would be great if you have Daniel chapter 4 open, Uh, and there's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card that Adam referenced earlier, uh, but we need to pray for God's help. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you humbly, acknowledging uh, that we all uh, need your grace and help this day. I need your help, Father, to uh, explain your word faithfully and clearly in a way that uh, brings to light the meaning of it. And uh, Father, we all need your help to receive your word, to trust it, uh, to delight in it and be changed by it. And so we ask, Father, for your help this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder how is it that you think that we as human beings can really flourish? How can we thrive and flourish as human beings? The story our culture tells us is that basically if you want to flourish as a human being, you have to pursue almost absolute freedom. Because any kind of person or structure or system, uh, any institution uh, that is kind of limiting your ability to express yourself as an individual, those things are restricting your freedom and therefore restricting your ability to flourish as a person. Well, that's the basic story of our culture. If you want to flourish, you've got to pursue almost absolute freedom. Actually, the story of Christianity is a bit different to that. The story of Christianity says if you want to flourish as a human being, it's not about proudly pursuing absolute freedom. It's about humbly living within the good and wise boundaries that the God who made the world has given us. In particular, in humbly bowing before him as king. As we look at Daniel chapter 4 today, we're really getting a glimpse into what it means to flourish as a human being. Uh, My kind of big idea, my summary of Daniel chapter 4 is that true human flourishing is found in humbly bowing before God as king. True human flourishing is found in humbly bowing before God as king. So have Daniel chapter 4 open. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3 first, uh, where we see there that King Nebuchadnezzar is eager to tell the world about the great works that God has done for him. Take a look at verse 1 for a start. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he says, to the nations and peoples of every language, uh, (coughs) excuse me, who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I've noticed that word Prosper. It speaks of health and well-being. It speaks of flourishing. That's what's on Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He wants the nations of the world to flourish, to prosper as they live their lives. And a key to their prospering is in verse 2. They've got to hear the great news of what God has done for him. Notice verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar says, "'It's my pleasure.'" to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God, that's the God of Israel, the Most High God has performed for me. Now, if you've been journeying with us through the book of Daniel, you'll know that the Most High God has already performed one miracle for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, You can read about it in chapter 2 later on if you like. But God, in chapter 2, revealed the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But as we read the rest of Daniel 4, as Rob just read for us, it's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar is speaking about a different miracle here in chapter 4, isn't he? It's a pretty spectacular miracle. It must be because Nebuchadnezzar's heart is full of praise for God, overflowing with praise. Notice verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar is so excited about what God has done for him. His heart is just overflowing with praise. He wants to tell everyone about it. So he's writing this letter to the nations to say, this is what the Lord has done for me. I wonder if you have ever felt like this in your life as you contemplate the great works that God has done for you in Jesus. Perhaps you've had these moments where your heart's just bubbling up with praise. Sometimes it even overflows with praise. And you think, oh, I just want to tell everyone about this. Now, of course, I don't want to be unrealistic. None of us feel like that all the time. Maybe it's a, a kind of infrequent occurrence. It is for me at times. But let me say, if you're a Christian and you've never experienced this bubbling up of joy and praise towards God, it it might be because you haven't really understood the wonder of what God has done for you in Jesus, or at least that your heart's grown a bit cold to what God has done for you in Jesus. You've lost your first love for it. Let me encourage you to think about that. If that feels kind of true for where your heart's at, maybe you want to talk to God about it this week. Say some prayers about it. Maybe you want to chat with a friend here at church or bring it up in your gospel community. And maybe you want to attend that training that Adam mentioned, the evangelism training. You're thinking to yourself, gee, oh, I'm not that eager to talk to people about Jesus, to tell them about the wonders that God has done for me. Yep, there might be some things to do. Anyway, in, uh, take a look uh, in verse 4. Oh, sorry, we're looking at verses 1 to 3, aren't we, right? Nebuchadnezzar is eager to tell the world about what God has done for him. And in the rest of the chapter, that's what he does. Right? He kind of goes back in time, in a sense, and tells us about those great works. And it all starts with this dream in verses 4 to 18, uh, where uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel about his dream. It's about, as we heard from Alex and Tim, the rise and fall of a great tree. So let's take a look at verse 4 now. I was a bit ahead of myself. Uh, I, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was at home in my palace. Notice how he feels, contented and prosperous. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, out of everyone on the planet, really does seem to be flourishing. Well, at least from the outside, he's content, he's satisfied, he's living the life that all of us would want to live, right? But in verse 5, he has this dream that makes him really afraid. And notice how he words it, the images and visions that passed before me in this dream terrified me. He's really disturbed by it. So in verse 6, he did what he did with his previous disturbing dream. In chapter 2, he summoned all the wise men of Babylon uh, and he asked them, can you interpret my dream? Uh, and again, verse 7, none of them can. That's what happened in chapter 2 as well. Uh, but one of them can, belted it Belteshazzar. It's a hard name to say, isn't it? Anyway, uh, he can do it. And so in verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar reports that Daniel entered his presence. I'm going to use the name Daniel rather than his kind of Babylonian name. Uh, Daniel enters his presence. Uh, Presumably Daniel was, I don't know, maybe he was running late or he was at the end of the line of wise men. I don't know why he comes last, but he enters uh, Nebuchadnezzar's presence. Uh, And Nebuchadnezzar remembers from his previous dream (laughs) that Daniel has what he calls the spirit of the holy gods in him. This supernatural ability to interpret dreams and visions. And I think we can say, we know, that this spirit of the holy gods is actually the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. You know, as Christians, we believe in Father, Son and Spirit. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that yet. All he knows is that somehow from his God, Daniel has the supernatural ability to interpret these dreams and visions. So he's pretty pumped that Daniel's come into his presence and in verses 10 to 18, uh, he tells Daniel his dream. Uh, Take a look in verse 10. You see there, Nebuchadnezzar saw an enormous tree in his dream. A great tree. Verse 11, this great tree uh, grows taller and taller and stronger and stronger uh, until its top actually reaches to the heavens. So the picture of this tree uh, is that it actually connects heaven and earth. It's the very centre of the universe. It's like it's holding everything together. It's visible to people in every part of the planet, Take a look in verse 12. It's described in really flourishing and prosperous ways. Its leaves are beautiful. Its fruit is abundant. And so it can provide food for everyone and everything. Under the canopy of the tree, the wild animals of the earth find shelter. In the branches of the tree, all the birds of the heavens make their nests. This tree is a picture of flourishing, of thriving it's absolutely magnificent. But in verse 13, things take a turn for the worst, particularly for us who live in the inner north, the Greensbo's pretty high. We're serious about caring for the environment. and yet, Nebuchadnezzar hears this holy one coming down, or sees this holy one coming down from heaven, probably a holy angel. He's also described as a messenger. Uh, maybe better as a watchman or lookout. Uh, and so this holy lookout person comes down from heaven to give God's decree, which in verse 14 is cut down the tree. What, why would you cut down a glorious tree? Cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves uh, and scatter its fruit. But this great tree of the universe is really being cut down to size. That's the picture here. So you'll notice the animals can no longer find shelter under its canopy. They run away from the tree. They flee. And the birds can no longer make their nests in the branches, so they too fly away. It really is a pretty grim picture. But notice verse 15. Look in verse 15. There's a glimmer of hope in verse 15. Because uh, the tree isn't completely destroyed. Its stump and roots remain in the ground, so there's at least some possibility that in the right circumstances, this tree might regrow. It might flourish again. Uh, The other thing to notice in verse 15 is the angel switches to, uh, a little strangely, calling the tree uh, his and him in chapter 2 we had that in Nebuchadnezzar's previous dream there was a stone that became a mountain here it seems like we've got a tree that's becoming a person a man a person who we're told uh, notice there will be drenched with the dew of heaven Uh, so everything's been flipped on its head here the tree that used to provide shelter for everyone and everything now can't even shelter itself you know it's going to be saturated with the dew that falls from heaven Uh, The angel also says, you see there, let him live with the animals uh, among the plants of the earth. Uh, So this tree that used to literally touch the heavens, connecting heaven and earth, is now bound to the earth, living among the plants and animals on the ground. Uh, remember with the iron and bronze, keeping it from growing. It's really being cut down to size. Uh, The angel says, uh, let, um excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, anyway, uh, and, and the tree has been, uh, we're then told, now, what am I looking at? I've skipped my, uh, skipped a page. There we go. Uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, this tree also, you see there, uh, we're told, uh, let him live with the wild animals and the plants of the earth. Uh, so this tree, uh, so the angel also says, ah, I'm back on track now. So let his mind be changed from that of a man. Yeah, that's right. So the the, um, kind of tree has to live with the wild animals uh, and it also becomes like an animal. Notice the next sentence. Let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by. So it's even clearer by this point that the tree has become a man. A human being who has lost all their senses, really, as a human being, all their sanity. They're no longer in their right mind. They've been driven away to live like a wild animal. Which is pretty confronting, isn't it? If you think this has all come about because of God's decree. Why would God decree that a glorious and flourishing human being be stripped of their glory? become so undignified that they become like a wild animal. Why would God decree that? I think the Bible tells us why in verse 17. In verse 17, God decrees this so that the living may know that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth uh, and gives those kingdoms to anyone he wishes uh, and sets over them the uh, the lowliest of people. This great tree is to be cut down to size, so that everyone would know that the Most High God is the sovereign King over all. But not like not just that that they would also know that if there's any king on earth who is great or any kingdom on earth that is great it's not because that king or is particularly intelligent or wise or skillful at least not primarily because of that right? look at verse 17 again it's because god has wished he's desired to give them a kingdom that's why they have a kingdom that's why they've become great And notice the end of verse 17. God wants to give these kingdoms in particular to the lowliest of people. That is to to people who are willing to humbly bow their knee before God as king. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And maybe it's not that surprising uh, given the spoiler alert of the kids talk and, you know, we've read the chapter But in verses 19 to 23, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, well, the dream's actually about you, Nebuchadnezzar. Look in verse 19, we see that for a moment Daniel's greatly perplexed, which actually has a sense of him being frozen with fear. He just doesn't know what to do with this dream. He's absolutely committed to giving Nebuchadnezzar a true interpretation of his dream but he takes really no pleasure at all in delivering a message of judgment. Uh, I mean, it's clear what the dream means. Uh, But Daniel doesn't relish talking to Nebuchadnezzar about it. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar kind of urges him to continue, so he says, My Lord, uh, if only the dream applied uh, to your enemies uh, and its meaning to your adversaries. Which, again, might make, me, make you think, why is Daniel being so supportive of Nebuchadnezzar? I don't know if you thought that, but it's a bit strange, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar's wicked, he's evil, he's oppressing God's people. He, he just threw Daniel's friends into a fiery furnace trying to kill them. Like, he's not that great a guy. So why is Daniel being so seemingly supportive of him? I don't know that Daniel's being supportive of Nebuchadnezzar in as much this verse gives us a glimpse into just how compassionate Daniel's heart is you see Daniel knows Nebuchadnezzar deserves to be judged by God he knows that I'm sure there's a part of him that longs for Nebuchadnezzar to get what's coming his way really longs for him to be cut down to size as he deserves But there's another part of of Daniel that longs even more for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself and experience God's mercy. I reckon that's a challenge for us. But all of us have a right impulse if people have sinned against us and wounded us or hurt us or wounded and hurt those who are close to us. We've got a right impulse for justice to be done, for people to pay for what they've done, for them to be cut down to size. There's a right impulse for that. And yet, wouldn't it be wonderful if those people really did humble themselves and truly repented of their sins and experienced the wonders of God's grace and mercy? I say wouldn't it be wonderful, but often we don't think that, do we? I think that just challenges. It suggests that our view of God's compassion and grace and kindness is is pretty small. We wouldn't want someone like Nebuchadnezzar to experience God's mercy. But Daniel does. But even though that's his preference, uh, he still uh, doesn't shy away from speaking the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. Look in verse 20. The great tree you saw in your vision, your majesty, you are that tree. It's a bit like a moment in uh, in Second Samuel, I think Second Samuel, maybe chapter twelve, uh, where King David has you know committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. The prophet Nathan tells that story about a man stealing a ewe lamb, and David's all up in arms, you know, how dare that person do that? And Nathan says, "You are that man." But this is that moment. You are the great tree. And the great tree on the positive side, Nebuchadnezzar, is a picture of the greatness of your kingdom. Uh, in this period of history, right, uh, the Babylonian Empire truly was the very center of the universe. Everything on the planet revolved around the Babylonian Empire. It was incredibly prosperous and majestic and glorious. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar wished that the dream ended there. But notice in verse 23, Daniel affirms God's decree that Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are going to be cut down. And so instead of being a great and flourishing human being, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be driven away to live like a wild animal. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar gave Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego Uh, one last chance to avoid his judgment. You remember? One last chance to bow down and worship the image. Uh, In verses 24 to 27, Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar a last chance to avoid God's judgment. He urges Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself now so that he just might continue to flourish as a human being. Notice in verses 24 and 25, uh, Daniel assures Nebuchadnezzar this really is going to happen. It really is God's decree. And in verse 26, Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar that the only way for him to avoid this fate is for him to humble himself before God. To humble himself before God as king. And so in verse 27, he urges Nebuchadnezzar to do that. To turn away from his life where he's kind of proudly puffing himself up, lifting himself up before God. As if he's the sovereign king over all, and to turn towards a life of humbly bowing before God, acknowledging that the Most High God is indeed the sovereign king over all. And it's the very end of verse 27, Daniel's saying, Hey, I'm not giving any guarantees here. <laughs> but if you do that, maybe, just maybe, your prosperity might continue. Maybe God might be merciful. To you. So I wonder at this point if you need to do this sort of thing today. Daniel's urging Nebuchadnezzar to stop living as if uh, in in pride, to stop living as if he's self self-suffi- completely self sufficient and doesn't need God. As if everything that's good about his life is just the result of his works and his efforts, of his goodness. I wonder if you need to turn away from that sort of life today, to admit that you're actually not as in control as you think you are. I mean, sure, you might be in control of this part of your life, but the other part of your life's a disaster. You're not as self-sufficient as you think you are. You try to be self-sufficient, but you just need God and others. You need food and sleep and friends but well, you're not self-sufficient we're all dependent on other people and yet we live as if we just might be maybe you've got to turn away from that life of proud self-sufficiency rejecting god and turn towards god humbly bowing your knee before him as king now, tragically nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that he doesn't heed daniel's advice in verses 28 to 33 Uh, He continues on, kind of proudly puffing himself up, uh, and therefore he ends up living like a wild animal. And notice from verse 29 in particular, 12 months later, as the king was walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence, by whose hand? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar's dream warned him to humble himself before God, to acknowledge that any greatness he had was actually a gift from God's mighty hand. It was God's work, not his. But what does he do? Here he proudly puffs himself up before God walking around proclaiming how great he is, that all his greatness is because of his works and his mighty power and his hand. And let me say, like, as I think back over the last nine and a half years, this is a temptation in ministry, isn't it? I've had to keep searching my own heart and, and thinking hey, if DPC has grown at all, it's not because of my mighty hand, my mighty works. We can slip into this, can't we? If things are going well at work, it's, it's because of my mighty hand and my works. Look at what I've built. We need to humble ourselves before God, don't we? So in verses 31 to 33, as soon as these words come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, everything God had decreed, comes true the great tree of nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is cut down he's stripped of all his dignity as a human being he's driven away to live among the animals because when you're not humbly bowing before god as king we actually do lose some of our dignity as human beings that's our world isn't it it's survival of the fittest people behaving like animals pushing others down so they can lift themselves up. So much of it is more animalistic than dignified human behaviour. And that's what happens for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Until finally, he reaches the end of himself, verses 34 to 37. He does humble himself before God as king, and his kingdom and humanity are restored. Notice verse 34. Everything changes for Nebuchadnezzar uh, when he finally humbles himself before God. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. It's almost like for the first time in his life, Nebuchadnezzar stopped fixing his eyes on the glory of him, the glory of his own kingdom, and started fixing his eyes on the glory of God in heaven. But Our eyes can be way too consumed about the glory of the stuff we have done on earth. You see, if you want to flourish as a human being, you've got to humbly bow before God as king. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this begrudgingly. It's not like, oh, you know, here, are, you know, my eagle feathers are annoying me. I better kind of submit to God. But he did it with praise on his lips. Verse 34. And then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Now, that's a sign of a truly humble heart before God, isn't it? a heart that loves him, delights in him, worships him, gives him the praise that he, that he deserves. And you might say, well, is God you know, a little bit insecure? He always needs you know, humble creatures <laughs> praising him all the time. No, 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 God's not insecure. Right? God made us lovingly to thrive and flourish as human beings in worshipping and serving him. So he brings us to a place, he brings us to our knees and brings us to praise him as he does with Nebuchadnezzar here for our own good, that we might flourish as people. And notice that from his humble posture before God, Nebuchadnezzar for the first time in his life can actually see things as they really are. And there's a bunch of ways in which he actually gets some perspective. For example, at the end of verse 34, what does Nebuchadnezzar see? He sees that while his kingdom, in the scheme of eternity, is really just a blip on the radar, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, God's kingdom endures forever, from generation to generation. He gets a right perspective. He used to, it was as if he had the magnifying glass on him and he had a big view of himself and a small view of God. Now he has a big view of God and a much smaller view of himself. And it's not just a smaller view of himself. Notice verse 35. He sees that in comparison with the majesty and glory of God, all the peoples on earth are like nothing. Which is not to say that every person made in God's image isn't precious to him. They are. But it is to say that the universe doesn't revolve around the glory of human beings. It revolves around the glory of God. And in comparison with the glory of God, human beings are like nothing. Bit like me, I've officiated at a few weddings. I reckon I look pretty glorious on those days, uh, but in comparison with the bride, I'm nothing because that day's not about me. Right, the glory, the spotlight should be on the bride and groom. I should just get out of the way. That's what Nebuchadnezzar realised. The universe revolves around God. And His glory. And that's a good thing. why? Because look in verse 35, uh, God is the only one who can sits in heaven and can do what He pleases. Right? Nothing happens in this world outside of God's will. Nothing can get in the way of God's will. And, that, and you might say, well, that seems a little bit kind of controlling and oppressive of God, but it's a great thing. Look in verse 36, God's will is always just and right. Not like my will, which is tainted by sin and my own self centeredness, not God. God's will is always just and right. So it's right that He be at the centre of all things and ruling over all things, and that the glory be on Him. See, if you want to flourish as a human being, this is the sort of Copernican revolution that you have to experience. I'm not really a, a kind of scientist. Uh, you can speak to Adam Humphreys about that if you like. Uh, but the Copernican Revolution, you know, this is the when astronomers realised uh, that the universe, the solar system, didn't actually revolve around the earth. It revolved around the sun. It was a massive paradigm shift. Spiritually speaking, that's what happens when you become a Christian, isn't it? You have a Copernican revolution, realising that life doesn't revolve around you and your glory, you know, making a name for yourself. It revolves around God and his glory, making a name for him. It's something like that, I don't really know, there's lots of debate, is Nebuchadnezzar actually becoming a part of God's people? Is he converted? I'm not exactly sure. But he's certainly giving some signs of someone who's getting it, isn't he? This is the kind of transformation that Nebuchadnezzar experiences here. Notice verse 37. Despite having the glory and power of his kingdom restored to even greater heights than before, he seems to now be walking in humility rather than walking in pride. Right, the true human flourishing is found in bowing before God as king. And as we read Daniel chapter 4 on this side of the coming of Jesus, we can be more specific right? because God has appointed a king. And true human flourishing is found in bowing before Christ as king. A bowing before him, not begrudgingly because, oh, you know, I suppose I have to, My parents are Christians. I feel pressured by others. Are bowing before him with joy and praise in your heart. Why should you do that? I want to suggest that it's because Jesus truly is the lowliest of kings. I remember back to, to chapter 4, verse 17. Daniel 4, verse 17. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. He gives those kingdoms to anyone that he wishes and he sets over those kingdoms the lowliest of people. This isn't just some, you know, lovely doctrinal statement about God's sovereignty. It's actually a description of history. The history that Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 predicted. Remember in chapter 2, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, the most high God has given you a kingdom. The Babylonian Empire, it's glorious, it's great, it's like the gold head in this statue. But it won't last forever. One day God will bring down your kingdom and he'll wish, he'll wish to give a kingdom to the Medo-Persian Empire. And that won't last forever. He'll bring down that kingdom and give a kingdom to the Greek Empire and he'll bring down that kingdom and give a kingdom to the Roman Empire. But what's the problem with all of these kingdoms and, in fact, every ruler and kingdom throughout history? They're not really lowly. And they're not actually humbly bowing before God as king. And so what does God do? When Rome is in power, he gives a kingdom to Christ his son. That's what he does. To Christ his son, who truly is the lowliest of kings. You think about Jesus and his kingdom. He was born not in a shiny palace, but in a smelly stable. He was welcomed, not by the religious and social elites, uh, but by a, a bunch of, of kind of, you know, low-life shepherds and some wise men from Babylon. But he's a lowly king. Uh, he was born in a kind of backwater village of Bethlehem, not in the capital city of Jerusalem. He did his all, almost all his ministry off-Broadway up in Galilee, not down in Judea and Jerusalem, where even his own family said he should be. But his appearance wasn't that impressive. If You remember Isaiah 53? He had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. His followers weren't very impressive. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, fishermen. And at the end of his life, he died the lowliest of deaths. Not publicly humiliated, stripped naked, mocked, scorned, crucified on a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem. God, his father, sent Jesus, his son, the lowliest of kings. He gave him a kingdom. Daniel 4, 17. He gave him a kingdom that didn't just bring down the Roman Empire, uh, but brought down the most powerful spiritual ruler who's empowered every proud and wicked regime throughout history. He brought down Satan. You might reflect to John chapter 12, verse 31. John 12, verse 31, uh, where Jesus describes uh, the coming of his kingdom, and he describes Satan, John 12, verse 31, as the prince of this world he's saying he's saying that satan is the ruler the prince of the power who's been behind every evil and wicked tyrant throughout history including nebuchadnezzar but in john 12 verse 31 jesus says now is the time for satan to be brought down for satan to be driven out literally kind of to be exercised this is the ultimate exorcism where you want an exorcism you look to the cross in verses 32 and 33, we see that Jesus is going to bring Satan down by as he is lifted up on the cross. When Jesus is lifted up to the cross and lifted up to his heavenly throne, Satan is thrown down. He's driven out. Why? Because the only power Satan had over us as the evil spiritual ruler was to accuse us of our sin, our pride and self-centeredness that... If we're honest, we all share with Nebuchadnezzar. But when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of that. And so Satan's only weapon over us has been taken away from him. He's been disarmed. He's been thrown down. He's been driven out. He's been dethroned. So you can bow humbly before Christ as king with joy and praise in your heart. For his father gave him a kingdom. He gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He had immeasurable power. And what did he do with that power? He gave his life for you, for me. He gave his life that we would be liberated from all the pride and self-centeredness that we see in Nebuchadnezzar. We liberated from that. Our humanity would be restored into the image of Christ our king. And we would flourish as human beings. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way uh, that this passage points us towards Jesus, our King. And we pray, Father, that uh, in these moments you would minister to our hearts by the power of your Spirit. And you would open our eyes to see the wonder of what Jesus, our King, has done for us. And that you would move us to humbly bow before him, Again, with joy and praise in our hearts, knowing that he willingly gave his life for us, giving his life to set us free from all our pride and self-centeredness and glory hunting, to restore our humanity into his perfect image, that we might flourish as true image bearers of yours, true human beings